All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to read verses 4, 5, and 6, but we'll spend all of our time, the sermon will come from verse 4 of Hebrews 13. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help us. <clears throat> Father, I pray that every word I say would accurately represent what you have given us in your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit would open, Father, soften, give ears. Because we need help today. Amen. So, Father, I pray that you would be present in a way that is unusual. That you would speak clearly, clearly from your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what I've just read you, what you have in front of you, given the world we live in, what you have in front of you is the most deeply biblical and radical statement that a person can make in today's world, especially verse 4. We live in a world where the sexual ethic is built upon the rotten foundation of self-expression and hedonism, rank hedonism. In addition to that, our, our entire commercial economy is built on a foundation that encourages us to have what we want and want what we don't have. I thought my 12-year-old Ford was a great car. Till Friday, Connie's, Connie's uh, birthday weekend, Friday, I carried her to South Park. Walked into South Park and inside the mall there, I'm walking and I'm very thankful for the 12-year-old Ford that I got until I walked up on a matte charcoal Maserati Quattroporte. I walked <laughs> You will, son, I promise. Walked by a kiosk, and there's a lady standing there with the cards, and I figured she's trying to sell something, so I ignored. But she had a, uh, a, some sort of accent I didn't recognize, and she said to me, Sir, I need to ask you something. I wanted to be polite. So I walked over, yes, ma'am, what's on your mind? She said, What do you do for the shadows under your eyes? I said, ma'am, I have never been asked that question before in my life. So far, I've just rubbed a little aqua velva on them, and it seems to have worked. I didn't know that I needed skin care until I met that woman. You see, the, the world around us encourages us to want what we don't have. 
But as a Christian, what you can have in your heart and mind, we sing it here sometimes, what you can have is the, the song that says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Amen. The point of this passage in front of you is that when you are filled up on Jesus, you are not hungry for the passing pleasures of this world. Now, what is the context? Where do we, what do we get here? Let's, let's, let's not just pull it out and make something. Let's go to where it's written in Hebrews 13. What's going on here is the preacher is giving his final summation, his strong argument at the end of Hebrews 13. It's almost over. He's talking to a group of people that are under, they're under passive persecution. They're not actively being killed because they're Christians, but passively society has put pressure on them. Some of them are going and renouncing the faith. And he's giving instructions to his people. And as he does, Kyler covered the first few verses last week of ministering outside what love does, causes us to take in strangers, minister to prisoners. He now comes inside the house. He turns his attention to our private life, knowing that my private life has public consequences. And he sets us up as Christians in chapter 13, reminding us that we are salt and light living in a dark and fallen world. Now, we are not dark and fallen. We don't live like we're not encouraged. We are salt and light living in darkness. That means we, we live here, but we do so with joy and determination and with grace. Look, I, I know. I know that in the world that we live in, things are going from bad to worse. That's what it feels like. It feels like every bit of it is going from bad to worse. But as Christians, let us not forget that, that we live from grace to grace. This passage in front of us today, it reminds us that a Christian's life, this is how I want to summarize the sermon. A Christian's life is joyfully different. A Christian's life. Now there's a lot you could say here. You can pull a good bit from verses 5 and 6. But I want to spend all of our time in verse 4. Because the world we live in needs verse 4. We need verse 4. What can we as a church, as Christians, as men and women... What can we do to be different? Here's the first one. Number one, that is we celebrate marriage. Amen. Celebrate marriage. Whether you are married or single, whether you've had a bad marriage, whether you've had a bad experience of marriage, we celebrate marriage, you see. Notice what the text says. Let's just take it and chop it up. Verse 4, notice what he says there. Let marriage, let's just take the first phrase. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Okay, to get the good out of this, let's just let's deal with the words first. I'm going to define a few words. Then let's come back and pick up the statement. And then after getting the statement, let's come back and make the implications. What are the words? Let marriage, take that word marriage. It might be a euphemism for marriage bed. What he's talking about there is the the great intimate joining of a man and a woman under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that marriage is to be, next word, honored. You see that word honored? 
What does it mean to honor marriage? That word honor there is oftentimes translated as precious. 1 Corinthians 3.12, Paul uses gold, silver, precious stones. When Peter talks about the blood of Jesus in 1 Peter, he says the precious, uses this word, precious blood of Jesus. In 2 Peter 4, when Peter talks about the promises of God, he says the precious, honor, promises of God. You bring that, um, bring that meaning here to this text. What does he say? That marriage is to be held as a sacred value, like a, like a precious jewel, like something that you would do anything to protect marriage. Okay, so those are a few of the words. Keep looking at it. Let marriage be held in honor. Go to the next phrase, the last phrase. Among all. You know what that is? That is a comprehensive statement. He's writing to a church that would have married people and single people in it. Now, if you're single and you, you heard this, or here's a sermon about marriage, please don't hear that. If you're single sitting in this room right now, don't check out yet. Some of you have been given the gift of singleness. You may be single your entire life, and that is something that you are satisfied with, and God has blessed that and will use it. Some of you have the gift of singleness for a little while. Whatever it is, if you're single right now, here you are. Don't waste that, even if it's temporary. Now's the time for you to serve the Lord Jesus with great freedom. Even still, single people are called to honor marriage as a gift from God. Okay, so those are the words in the first phrase. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, let's take the statement. Go back and look at it with me in verse 4. Those are the words. Here's the statement. <clears throat> let marriage. See that first English word, let? It's put there to tell us something. Let marriage be held in, in honor among all. That statement is written as an imperative. That's what the let tells you. It's written as a command for the church, for married people and for single people alike. So as I'm rolling this around, I'm thinking about it. Why then? <clears throat> why is this written at the end of his sermon? Why is he saying this? And why is it, why is it such a big deal? I mean, the truth is, if you go to a church that talks a lot about marriage, as ours oftentimes does, and you're single, it can sometimes feel like the church is, is worshiping marriage. That can't be. That's certainly not what we're doing. Why, why is it then such a centerpiece of Christianity? Why is it so important? I'd like to offer up a few suggestions. Now, as I was studying, a, a couple of the commentaries um, said almost the same thing, but a man named Kent Hughes Put, um, put it in a Trinitarian format, which I thought was really interesting. And I'd like to kind of give that to you, thinking about why is it so important. Here's the first one. Marriage is a creation ordinance. Creation ordinance. God the Father honored marriage by establishing it before sin entered the world. Go back and look, where did marriage, where does it come from? From Genesis chapter 2. So, so, so marriage is not just a, a Christian institution. Marriage is not just right for Christian people. People say you're imposing morality. The truth of the matter is, God gave marriage for human flourishing before sin entered the world. 
God said as he brought a man and a woman together, man and, man and woman, made in the image of God, brings them together, and in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And to pause here, this is why we as Christians categorically reject out of hand any idea of so-called same-sex marriage. Because we believe that marriage is a gift of God given at creation between a man and a woman, both created in, in the image of God, and that is there for human flourishing. That marriage was given before sin entered the world and thereby becomes one of the very first building blocks of a well-ordered society. God the Father, we're going to go God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father honored marriage by creating it. All right, what about God the Son? That's Jesus. God the Son honored marriage by attending a wedding. If you go and read John chapter 2... The very first miracle is at Cana of Galilee and Jesus is there at a wedding, performs his very first miracle. He changes water into wine. It was a Presbyterian wedding. Changes water into wine and honors the marriage by being there. When Jesus talked about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, the, the topic comes up and Jesus speaks of marriage. And when he does in Matthew chapter 19, he goes immediately to quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus himself says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So when we talk about marriage, we mean God the Father created it, gave it to us, established it at creation. God the Son has blessed it with his presence and sanctioning it with Genesis chapter 2. What about God the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit honored marriage. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit honored marriage by using marriage as a picture of the gospel. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5, don't do it now, but go there sometime. Ephesians chapter 5 is the most definitive instruction manual for marriage. I would encourage every wife-to-be and every husband-to-be to memorize Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. Begins by saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Goes to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ does the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes back and forth talking about the husband and the wife and he gets to the end of it. This is so important. At the end of that inscription, Paul says, Now look, this is about... Christ and the church. So that marriage then takes on this weight. Marriage becomes this, this tangible symbol and display of the gospel. A good, a, good, a good place for me to pause and talk about the gospel. What does marriage symbolize? It reminds us that God is a good and holy creator who created all of us, created you in his image. You are here today, you need to hear that you have dignity because you are created in the image of God, man or woman. You have dignity. Now the dignity is now flawed because of our own sin. It's disfigured. It's, it's made it so that 
the dignity we once had has been shrouded and covered by our sin. That sin is such that it doesn't just make us far away from God. That's confusing language sometimes. The sin that we have, it, it's, a, it's treason against God. It's a crime against God as a holy judge. And being holy, he must uphold justice. He will punish sin. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. So every person here that's outside of Christ, we stand under the condemnation of, of God. We're, we need help. But God is not just a judge. He is also loving and kind and gracious and merciful. And He loves us to the degree He gave us Jesus. Now here comes the gospel. Jesus lived perfectly. This is important. In a way that we can't. Especially now we're going to talk about sexual ethics. Jesus lived perfectly, righteously. And he goes to the cross, and at the cross, here's what he does. He takes the wrath of God that we deserve. The cross was the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God for sinners, and he gives his righteousness so that, how do you appropriate the gospel? You, the way this applies to you is, you believe that Jesus died for you. Now, Paul takes the gospel and infuses the symbolism of marriage into the gospel. And this reminds us that God is extremely serious about the marriage of a man and a woman. And he gives it to us in these beautiful, positive terms, reminding us that, that as a Christian, a Christian's life is joyfully different. Why? We celebrate marriage. But that's not all we do. You keep looking at this verse, you'll find other things there. What else do we do besides celebrate marriage? Let's just say you're sitting here, you'd say, okay, I agree with everything you say. I think marriage is good and right and a gift from God. Even as a single person, you can say, I'm, I'm thankful that the building block for society. What else do we do? Let's drill down a little deeper. Number two. We fight for purity. We fight for purity. Go with me there to verse 4 and read the first and second phrase in verse 4. <clears throat> Look what he says. Let marriage be held in honor by all. We got that. And let the marriage bed. I guess a little more personal. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. So here's what the preacher does now. It's so interesting that this is at the end of his sermon. The preacher comes in a little closer to the private life between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And he, and he says about the union, about that marriage, and more specifically, the marriage bed, he says, let that union be, look at the word, undefiled. Well, I got interested. What is that? I mean, is that used in other places? How do you describe the word? What is the semantic domain? I want to get a good feel for what it means. Just four other times in the New Testament do you find that word undefiled. And every single time it means basically keep it pure, keep it free from contamination. This, this means any, any contamination, large or small. Look, it only takes one roach on a piece of chocolate cake to make it to where you don't want to have it. Large or, you, you may be thinking about world-class sins, large or small. Anything. 
He comes into where the, the, the home is. What, what, what would damage the God-given grace of the joyful union between a man and a woman for life? And this comes down to the central tenet, a command for you and I, single or married, to fight for purity in marriage. And in today's world, is, in today's world it is an absolute slugfest. Much harder, in my opinion. Much harder today than it was 50 years ago. For several reasons. I'll give them to you quickly. What do we have to, what do we have to fight against? What is it we're looking at? What, what do we, how do we do this? The first one is the word um, attitude. Attitude. We need to fight for the right attitude. Look, we, 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 we swim in an ocean of promiscuity and permissiveness. We swim in a cesspool of devaluing marriage. Everywhere we look, there's this deconstructing of the sexual ethic from the Bible. Taking everything away that we once held dear, even within a society. We swim in that. That's where we are. So, so it affects our attitude. It's easy to have your attitude shift over the course, over the course of time because the world has shifted to such a degree you you end up being on the other side of everything. And the battle oftentimes is in our own mind and hearts. It's good. Now, it's good for us to remember. <clears throat> how do we, then how do we do it? We've got to live. We've got to work. We've got to go to school. How then do we, do we do it? The first century Christians and sometimes the second century Christians, they took a symbol from the Old Testament and they viewed that as how they lived in a persecuting society. That symbol was the ark. It came from the idea that when God told Noah to build the ark and his family went into that ark, and if you go read the story, God sealed them up in the ark. Now, they were in the middle of a flood, but they were safe because they're in the ark. And this writer right here tells us the ark is Christ. How do you do it? Do you set your mind and your heart on things above where Christ is. We fight with our attitudes. There's something else that um, more practical maybe is we fight, we fight the availability. Availability. It's available. Almost everywhere. Every person in this room right now immediately can get to pornography. Immediately. To, to any kind of debauchery, it's everywhere. So, so we, we've got to take these drastic steps to fight it, to delete it, to, to throw things away, to protect your children. What did Jesus say when he said about fighting sin? What did he say about your right hand? If it causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's your right eye, your dominant eye, and it causes you to sin, Jesus says tear it out and throw it out. It would be much better for you to go into heaven with one eye. Look, what you say and where you go and how you live and steps you take. Brothers and sisters, we are living as exiles in a foreign land. Availability. Another way we fight is with, with our actions. That is, what you say and where you go and how you live and steps you take. And understand that you don't belong to this world. That, that we fight sin and we fight for purity. 
I've uh, been thinking about this and thought, how would I apply it? And I remembered something from John Piper from 20 years ago, 2001. I found it on the Desiring God website. John Piper talked about fighting sin, and he used the acronym ANTHEM, A-N-T-H-E-M, ANTHEM. Let me just kind of give that to you very quickly. How do we fight? A is for avoid. Avoid as much as possible the sights and the situations that might cause you to sin. If that means a place, avoid it. Is that a screen? Avoid the screen. Is that some sort of social media or TikTok? Or, or on the internet late at night? It's a terrible time. You set yourself up for failure. Or, or out at the clubs or a bar. Or certain friends you know if you're with that friend, you're going to fall off the edge. Avoid. The next letter is the letter N. He, he uses that to say, simply say no. What he would say, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds because it takes at least that long, maybe a little longer to get embedded into your soul if you don't, if you don't act immediately. He says to say no in the name of Jesus. He even suggests to say it out loud. Now be careful doing that. John Owen said we ought to be killing sin or sin's going to be killing us. A-N-T. What is the T? T is for turn. Turn your mind forcefully toward Christ as the superior satisfaction. You know, saying, saying no isn't enough. We've got to go from playing defense to, to playing offense. What that means is to attack the lies of sin with the promises of Christ. Whatever the lie is that sin tells you, attack it with the promises of Christ. If that's not enough, then take the T and make it think. Think about the ramifications three or four steps down the road. Where is this going to end? H. What is the H? H is to hold. Hold the promises of Christ. Hold the truth of God's word firmly in your mind until it pushes all the other images out of your mind and heart. The preacher here will say in Hebrews 2, fix your mind on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. A-N-T-H-E. E is to enjoy. Enjoy the superior satisfaction of Christ. Enjoy the superior satisfaction of being in fellowship with Christ, fellowship with His church, fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would just lay it out before I go to the next letter is what steps are you taking in your life right now to deepen your love for Christ so that you become stronger and able to fight the sin in your life? Have you taken worship more seriously? Have you started to confess your sins to God, saying the same thing about the sin and rejoicing in the grace of God given to you at Christ, in Christ? Have you, have you deepened your fellowship with Christ and with the church? Are you spending more time with brothers and sisters who, that have some interest in your well-being? Maybe sitting in this room there, there are people that you actually need to become a Christian. You've been coming to church, but it hasn't taken in your heart. E. Let's finish out the, uh, the word anthem with M. It's interesting that uh, Piper says that M is for move. We need to move in some sort of useful activity, get away from idleness and boredom. We get in trouble, especially young men, older ones too, when we get bored. 
There's a reason that the old folks say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Piper says, get up and do something. Clean, clean the house, work, go for a walk, do a hundred jumping jacks. I don't know. Move. Anthem, we fight sin. And there is, let me just, let me just say, there is great joy in getting victory over a sin that tripped you up for years. There's great joy in that. Christian life is joyfully different. From this passage, we talk about celebrating marriage, so we got that. But then we go very specifically to single and married, and we fight for purity. Something actively we do, we can do that. Let me give you the third thing we do. Number three, this may be the most important. That is, we always apply the gospel. Be careful now when we talk about what we view as right and wrong, that, that it doesn't come off as this. all we do is talk about what's wrong. We, we always apply the gospel. Now join me in verse 4. Let's finish by reading verse 4. Read it in its entirety and see the emphasis on the end of verse 4. And as you read it, feel the serious weight that is at issue at the end of verse 4. Feel how serious sexual sin is. Is. Let me read it to you. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Slow down. Look squarely. God will judge the sexually immoral. You should be translated fornicator. Sexually immoral and the adulteress. God will judge. You look, look squarely at it. We don't look away from the Bible. Look squarely. God will judge the sexually immoral. That word is, means someone that has had sex before marriage or outside of marriage. So that falls under judgment of God. And then God will judge the adulteress. That's one that's had sex with someone beside your spouse. God falls under judgment of God. And the statement here is that, that God as a judge condemns that. So listen, there are many in this room right now that have committed a sin like this and deserve judgment. It's what you deserve. But Christianity doesn't stop at judgment. In fact, that's where it starts. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church, a church in Corinth. And he addressed this very thing as he spoke to that church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. It's going to be on the screens. I don't want you to see it. And this is how we're going to close. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterous, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Gospel. 
but you were washed. You were under judgment, but you're washed. Jesus died for you on the cross. You put your faith in what Christ did for you. That, that is a cleansing agent for your soul. You don't sit here ashamed anymore. You're clean. You're not dirty. You're clean. You've been washed. And then it gives another. Keep looking at it. Verse 11. But you were sanctified. Not condemned. Not unrighteous. You are now holy. That was something dirty. You're not that anymore. But you, some of you are like that, but now you're in Jesus. You're holy. He says it again. But you were justified. You were unrighteous. You did break the law. You were under condemnation. That's what we deserve, certainly. But you're in Christ now. You, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a son of God by the blood of Jesus. And, and, and notice how he finishes verse 11. Just keep looking at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. He gives us, it's, it's like Jesus himself signed the notice. In the name, the full name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. Now look. <clears throat> If this passage has made you uncomfortable or ashamed and you're a Christian or, or maybe this passage has, has made you worried for someone that you love, you run here to the gospel. Now listen, we, we do not diminish God's hatred for sin. But we rejoice in the forgiving power, the cleansing power, the saving, healing power of Jesus Christ. We give thanks for His perfect life in our place. He's righteous, we are not. We give thanks for His atoning death on the cross where He paid for our sins. We rejoice in that. We give thanks for His resurrection where God said to us, You are forgiven. We give thanks. For that. There is our ground. There's our hope. There's our joy. A Christian's life is joyfully different because of Jesus. Now this morning as we close, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, I want you to join me in a, just an attitude of prayer before we go into our time of singing. With your heads bowed this morning, let's pray together. We're going to give an invitation. I want, to invite it. I want to invite several people. I want to talk to some of you. You need to pray for, you need to actually pray for someone you know and love that's trapped in sin. You need to pray for that person. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a friend. You, you need to pray for someone that is trapped in sin. We have hope. When Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, he said there were some of those people out there used to be like that. We have hope. Some of you here, it's you. You need God to give you strength to abandon and forsake your sin, to, to, to run away from it and run to Christ. And you need to do that today. It's popped up in your mind and heart. You know that it's wrong. And before the Lord, we need to repudiate that and run away from it. If you need a pastor to pray for you or 
stand with you. We want to do that. They'll be down here. You just come forward and let us pray with you. Some of you here, you need the power of Jesus to save you and redeem you. You need Christ. Can't do this. Can't live like this in this world without Christ. God has opened your heart to receive. If He's opened your eyes to see it, if He's opened your ears to hear the gospel today, you want to be saved. When we sing, we'll invite you to come forward and talk to a pastor. We never, ever, ever give up hope. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you would move in a way that honors the gospel. It's good for your people. Pray that you would give the forgiving grace that's found in Jesus. Pray that you would restore hope. We pray for marriages, that you would bind them under the Lordship of Christ. We pray for single brothers and sisters to live their lives with purity and joy in the grace you've given us in Christ. Make us a church that is distinctively different because of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.